chapter 3. We're moving at a little bit slower of a pace than I anticipated. I thought I would sort of kind of glide through a summer series in the pastoral epistles, but it seems like the Lord is slowing me down a little bit. And this morning we're covering a topic that perhaps you might be tempted to check out and just sort of think about lunch on or something like that. We're talking about deacons and deaconesses. But let me just encourage you not to check out. Let me encourage you, contrawise to that, to actually engage in what the text has for us this morning. Some of you are deacons. Some of you are what we call here deaconesses. And some of you want to be or maybe aspire to be a deacon or a deaconess. But some of you might say, look, I'm not either and I'm neither and I'm fine. And so that'll be good for them. And so I'll just sort of put my mind over here in park and think about whether or not it's chicken or pizza this afternoon. I want to encourage you don't do that because the word deacon is the word servant in scripture. And all Christians are called to serve Jesus Christ and to be a servant because all Christians are called to be like Jesus. And guess what? Jesus called himself a servant. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 10 45 says, and these are quoting Jesus. These are words that are Jesus's words to the church. I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Guess what? We are called to be like that. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, chapter 3 says very clearly to us, uh, let me edit that, 2 verse 5, Philippians 2 5, I came, have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus, who came in the form of a slave or a servant. Guess what? We're not off the hook. Attitudinally, we're all supposed to be deacons. We're all supposed to be slaves or servants. We are. Paul called himself a servant, the servant of God. And the word actually is used throughout the New Testament in an unofficial way. We're talking about, you know, last week we're talking about elders, pastors. Um, We're talking about offices in the church, meaning pastors and deacons. But I want to just make this more organic and applicational to you. Servant is used of all Christians. All Christians are called to be deacons. You are. You just are. Uh, In the New Testament, when Jesus was at the wedding of Canaan and performed his first miracle, the waiters were called servants. Uh, It's more broad than that. Policemen in Romans chapter 13 are called ministers of God or servants of God. Uh, This is a broad category that speaks to Christians and Christianity, because to be a Christian is to be someone who esteems others higher than yourself. You're a servant. You are. If you want to be like Jesus, you got to be a servant. That's it. You, you can't let yourself off the hook. Being a minister of God is Christianity. Now, this is a list of qualifications that we're going to talk about um, for being in the office of deacon but I just want you to go beneath the surface and explore in your hearts, Lord, what are you calling me to do? And maybe more importantly than that, what are you calling me first and foremost to be? 
I'm gonna read this list of qualifications and I wanna say this. Here's sort of the big idea. We're gonna read these list of qualifications and none of these qualifications actually tell you what you're supposed to do, but they absolutely tell you who you are supposed to be, okay? So with that in mind, let me read verses eight through 13 from 1 Timothy 3. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, sort of early in the sermon, get in your grill a little bit. Let me just allow me, permit me to get inside just a little bit early on here. And I want to do this with sort of a top four list. We're going to do a top four list, okay? These are the top four reasons I came up with this week, um, how we let ourselves off the hook from serving, okay? These are, see if any of these sound familiar. The top four reasons to rationalize serving, uh, rationalize not serving in the local church, okay? Here's number one. Number one on our top four list is, I don't know where to serve. Have you ever heard that? I know that you, you know, God bless the sin-sick, shriveled-up soul that says that, you know. The church is just so disorganized and it's not clear. There's no sign-up sheet in the back. I have no idea how to engage in this church, so I can't serve, right? We actually, by the way, have designated a, um, one of our secretaries to be an administrator of service over the deacons. Now, the pastor is spiritually over the deacons and deaconesses, but this is a facilitator for ministry. And so part of that quick connect you get on Tuesdays and phone calls you might have if you've signed up and been affirmed as a deacon and deaconess is coming from this heart to organize our church for service. So that's important, but I just want to sort of dig into your hearts. Have you ever said to yourself, look, I don't know where to serve, so I, I ain't going to do it. I'm just going to not do it. You know, I'll show up, but I'm not going to serve. All right, number two, before I get in trouble. Number two, um, I don't have time to serve. None of you have ever said that, right? Come on. I don't have time. Now, I understand. Look, time is precious. Time is a commodity. There's a lot of things we have going on. We have a limited amount of emotion that we can expend with different duties, but who has ever thought to themselves, look, I don't have time to jump in and serve. I got nothing left. Maybe none of you. Okay, number three. Here's one. Um, I don't know what my spiritual gift is, so I, I can't serve. I don't know. You know, I look at the gift list. I need, I need my checklist. I need my study guide. I need my class on spiritual gifts. Where is it? They're not providing it, so I don't know who I am in Christ, so I can't serve. Any, any of those thoughts ever hit your brain? I mean, I know they have me. I've been tempted to think along those lines. All right, number four. This is my favorite of all time, especially in regards to serving the nursery. Um, I've put in my time, and that was a, a former season, so I don't need to serve in that capacity ever again. It's the idea, look, I'm burned out. 
I've been there, did that, right? And those young moms, God bless them, and they can handle that in the nursery. Or the young moms say, look, I'm in a season of life where I can't serve, and so I can't jump in in that capacity. I need to lean on the older saints in the church. You know, it kind of cuts both ways. So these are real conversations that you probably have in your own heart or with other people. I can't serve. I don't know where to serve. They're telling me I'm not led well. I don't have time to serve. I don't know my spiritual gift and I'm sort of burned out. So I'm leaving it to the other people to serve. Well, all right. These are not all illegitimate things to think about, but I want to just point you to scripture. That's what I said before. It's the big idea of the text. Paul's concern in terms of service in the local church isn't first and foremost in terms of what you're supposed to do but instead, who you are supposed to be. And guess what? As a Christian, you're called to be a servant, but you're called first and foremost to be a servant in terms of your character, your heart, and then what you do flows out of that. In other words, a lot of people get hung up on trying to nail down what is my spiritual gift more than just trying to grow and be like Jesus. And if you grow and you're more and more like Christ, guess what's gonna happen? If you are the right person, then the church is going to come knocking and say, could you serve in this way? You know, there's this opportunity and you really qualify for that. Or, you know, your heart just seems to, to, to go in that direction. Maybe that's your ministry. Have you ever had that experience? It flows not out of some pragmatism or some sort of org chart. It flows out of just your own desires and your own heart and your own God-given circumstances in connection with your own spiritual growth. So as you grow, as perhaps you look at a list like this and say, Lord, examine my own heart and grow me in this, guess what? God will open doors for you. It's not, you've heard this said before, it's not really your ability that leads you into service, it's your availability that leads you into service. And it's, it's Christ's character in you that, that opens the door for that kind of availability, that kind of connection in the body of Christ. So we're called to grow. Here's a... Uh, Kind of a trivial um, illustration, but I'll use it um, nevertheless. It didn't work on my teenager, but here, let's give it a go. Um, all right. Last week, I went to Seward and I camped, and I sort of confess that I don't like camping. I need to deconstruct that even on tape. I do like camping. I like sitting around the fire. I like the, What I don't like about camping is sleeping on hard ground. That's all I don't like. And in fact, I actually was able to do stand-up paddling um, in Seward for the first time with my family. And I was instructed by a, an East Coast surfer who was in town instructing people to do that. Had a lot of fun doing that. Sort of put me in a surfing frame of mind. And I was thinking about my earlier days as a child being raised as a surfer. And my father actually kind of passed that tradition down to me. He grew up as a surfer, had boards always. And, and he bought me my first surfboard when I was 12. This board was like, you know, what you'd call a pig sticker. It was just a big old hunk of fiberglass and didn't mean a whole lot to me at first glance. 50 bucks on, you know, old version of Craigslist, which we called Trading Post. And it was a little newspaper thing. And you go to somebody's backyard and you buy a surfboard. But an expert or an aficionado of surfing looked at this surfboard one time with a different glance. And he said, do you realize who shaped this board? And he looked underneath the fiberglass along the balsa strip, and it said, shaped by the master, Jerry Lopez. Now, that means nothing 
to you, and this is why the illustration doesn't work. However, Jerry Lopez was a two-time surfing champion from the North Shore of Oahu who would surf the Bonsai Pipeline in the 70s, won it twice, and his very hands shaped this big wave gun that was made to do that in Hawaii. Suddenly, the 12-year-old's eyes widened, and this became a precious board to me. By analogy, what I'm trying to communicate is, listen, in terms of being a servant, in terms of, in terms of being the right person, I think it's very important that you understand that, listen, through a process of examining your life according to Scripture, you need to think, I want to be shaped by the Master, God. I want Him to transform my life from the inside out. And so as we look at this list Please go into it with that kind of spirit. Don't check out. We're all called to be this and to be shaped and molded by our master. Let's look at the first qualification in verse 8. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Now, as we look at the word dignified, which means respectable or grave, we'll remember last week that we talked about this category in terms of an elder who is also an overseer who's also a pastor okay we've talked about this we need to be those who fear God and have a sense of seriousness at least in terms of our ministry in terms of who we are as a minister of the gospel very serious stuff before we go into that I want to just remind you that the idea of deacon here is the idea of an office verse 8 says likewise um, in other words, we talked about the office of elder, pastor, overseer. Likewise, we're actually talking about people who are particularly identified and selected to be servants in the church. It's everything right about that. I mean, not everybody is on the same level. It's not time for everybody to be identified in that way. But as you grow spiritually, as you're being shaped by the master, guess what? The church will look around and go, you know what? You you might be a deacon. You might be a deaconess. You know, you, you just seem to, to fly and flow in service here in the body of Christ. And what happens is, is the body identifies people and the leadership of the church affirms those people. This is actually what was done in Acts chapter 6. Do you remember that? I mean, if you sort of look back there in Acts chapter 6, you'll remember there was a lot going on in the early church and even some things that threatened to split the church. They were serious. Acts 6, you had Hebrew Christians. You had what were called Hellenist Christians or Greco-Roman Christians. You had Gentiles. So they were enmeshing for the first time. And you had this accusation against the Hebrew Christian leadership. You're not taking care of our Gentile widows. Guess what? That's a double accusation. First of all, there was an accusation that the Hebrew Christians were being racial, racist against the Gentile Christians. They were, they were segregating. They weren't taking care of the Gentile widows. Secondly, it was the idea that they weren't taking care of those who were needy, those who needed care and help. What does 1 Timothy 5 say? If you don't take care of your own, you're worse than an unbeliever. So this was a strong accusation that the apostles jumped on. And as the Hebrews, I mean, Acts chapter 6 opens up, you'll see that, that they went to the body, they went to the disciples, they gathered everybody together and said, look, identify people in the body who you believe are servants 
and present them to us. We want to identify seven men in particular to be deacons. Our process of identifying leaders and deacons and deaconesses is kind of mirrors that process there. And so if you turn over to Acts chapter 6, you'll see that that's what happened. You remember some of the deacons that were identified or, or early servants that were identified? Philip and Stephen were part of this list. And it was that the apostles were saying, listen, the accusation is we're not taking care of these widows and we need to identify people to serve them and wait on them and provide food for them. Verse 3, therefore says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And then verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So are these the first deacons? I just wanna ask that question real quick. Well, not exactly. I think in precedent, you have apostles and you have people who are identified in a unique way to be evangelists and to serve but they're not exactly deacons and deaconesses from 1 Timothy 3. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul greets the overseers and the deacons. And so you have that kind of parallel um, of people devoted to the word and people devoted to service. But this is a unique early category where it's almost like proto or early deacon-like people. But these people, like Stephen, were preachers, handlers of the word of God. And so it's important to understand that there's a distinction there. These were evangelists. Remember, Stephen was the first martyr who died for preaching the word of God. So what do we have back here in 1 Timothy? We have something that sort of evolved in the church where people were identified similarly, but it's broader. We have more than seven deacons here in our church. And we also have what's called women deacons or deaconesses. So it's something that I think fits more particularly in 1 Timothy 3. All of that was for free, just to give you a little context for what people talk about when they talk about deacons. So verse 8, they must be dignified. They must be, first of all, people who are respectable or serious. 1 Timothy 2.2 2 says this is for everybody. Everybody's supposed to be this way. Number two, not to be double-tongued. Now, Paul goes into this qualification giving three knots. Guess what? This is, you can't be this, you can't be that, you can't be this if you're to be qualified as a deacon. Verse 8, not double-tongued. It, it's dialogos. It's you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth and be a qualified deacon. Spiritual leaders have to be guarded in terms of their speech. James 3 says as much. Let not many of you become teachers of the word of God. You got to govern your heart in terms of what you say. You can't be plastic-faced as a spiritual leader. If you ever get that sense that someone's plastic or superficial or talking out of both sides of their mouths, that's something that needs to be addressed and held in check for spiritual leaders. It's just a qualification. And it's a real qualification. James 3 talks about the damage that can be done with a loose tongue if you are a spiritual leader. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress, he identifies through allegory a person who's called Mr. Two-Tongued. So that's a real spiritual thing that's negative that can happen. Number three, so you, can't be, you have to be dignified. You can't be double-tongued. Number three, the second thing you can't be is you can't be an addict. We talked about this last week. You can't be addicted to alcohol. You can't be addicted to drugs, whether prescribed or unprescribed. You shouldn't be addicted to food. You shouldn't be addicted to caffeine. Listen, 
a spiritual leader is satisfied on Christ, so there are things that have to be held in check. There are, there are kinds of entertainment. There are kinds of things that perhaps aren't as bad as pornography that are still addictions that still have to be held with an open hand for you to serve. You say, I don't have time to serve in this capacity. Well, perhaps you need to let go of some addictions because the Bible says you can't be addicted. That word literally is translated one for one from the Greek to the English. It's pros ekontos. You can't be going towards something that has you. Isn't that an interesting word picture? It's something that has you, that you're living for. It's like an idol. You can't live for these idols of the heart as an addict and be a qualified spiritual example or leader in the church. So, again, literally, it says not addicted to much wine. I think that's broader than just alcohol. But it's the idea that you're not someone who is addicted to drinking. You're not a drinker in terms of being codependent or needy. And then, last one in verse 8, not greedy for dishonest gain. You can't be greedy. Look, a lot of times deacons have access to money, finances. Um, the gift of administration is that same original word, diakonos. It's, it's the idea that you've got privy to money and there's, there's perhaps the temptation to pilfer that or be like Judas Iscariot. And you can't be greedy. What's the solution to being greedy? What does the Bible say the solution for being greedy is? The antidote. It's that you're content to be godly. If you flip over 1 Timothy chapter 5 or 6, it talks about this, um, that for spirituality, and I love this. This is a good thing to hold all of us in check and myself included. Really, all that we need in terms of being satisfied in our heart according to Scripture, according to the teachings of Christ that are reflected here in 1 Timothy 6 is this, food, clothing, shelter. I mean, that's what it means to provide for your family, you have food, you have clothing, you have shelter. Now, there's a lot of things you can buy. There are a lot of things we can enjoy in this world. We want to be able to give our money to other people. We want to enjoy that blessing. But really, if in your heart you say, listen, as long as I'm eating and my family's eating, as long as they're clothed, and as long as they've got a place to rest their head, I am at that level happy. Think about it. It's not, you know, what I wish I had or what I'd lost or what, but if, if that is sort of the container of soul satisfaction in your heart, then you are in a good way for godliness and for happiness and joy in your life. It gets sucked dry when you live for what you can't have or you wish you had, when it becomes an idol. I can't, I didn't take time and list out, you know, different rock and roll stars or actors or people who have ended their lives because they actually were able to buy what they thought that they could achieve to make them happy and then they were vacuous in their hearts and so they ended their life. And so it's over. There's nothing more here. There's nothing that can satisfy me and you can fill in the planks of people that have done that. Well, 1 Timothy 6, it gives this very strong commentary on that. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing and with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many sen senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's a big temptation. There's a lot of temptation here in Anchorage. There are a lot of people with a lot of toys and there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with gaining possessions is living to gain possessions, living for soul self-satisfaction through material gain. Or if you don't have what you wish that you had and you observe people with things that they have and you say, I would be happy if I had X, Y, or Z, that's an equally dangerous place to be in terms of your heart. So whether you have much or little, the key is being content. Food, clothing, and shelter. Can't emphasize that enough. I know you've heard it before, but it's important to say, again, not being greedy. All right, now number five. You thought I went long on that. We may not dig our our way out of number five, but we did last hour. Knows and lives sound doctrine. Look at this. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. All right, listen to me here. This is what I'm talking about. Um, A lot of times in a lot of churches and a lot of traditions in terms of being a deacon, there is a mindset. And the mindset is this. I'll be a deacon because I really don't understand the Bible very well or the deep things of God or just gospel doctrine. And so I'm going to serve and participate in that way and leave the the heady stuff to the pastor or pastors or the people who are teachers, people who understand the Bible. I'm just going to serve. And so I'll sort of check out in terms of doctrine or gospel doctrine, sound doctrine. Uh, Another even maybe more dangerous category would be this. I'm a businessman, I'm a leader, I get, you know, how to get things done and administrate, and so I understand the church constitution, I understand the bylaws, I understand, you know, polity and ways and means and systems, and so I'll focus there instead of the Bible stuff. I'll leave the Bible doctrine stuff to pastors or those leaders or teachers or, you know, the eggheads. I'll let them do that, but I want to do something and I can do, get things done because I can do it in a business mindset. It's not what the Bible says we're supposed to do. If you're a deacon or deaconess, you are someone who knows doctrine. Now, the difference between an elder and a deacon in terms of qualifications is one difference. Deacons don't have to necessarily be capable teachers. And that's 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, able to teach overseers, elders, pastors, they're the ones who have to be set apart to teach the word of God, to train people in that way. Deacons though, and deaconesses have to know truth, know sound doctrine, and guess what? According to verse nine, they have to have a clear conscience, which means they have to live it. They have to know truth and live truth. That makes all the sense in the world, because a lot of times as you're serving someone, going to the hospital, meeting somebody's need, guess what? You've got to do it in the name of Christ, in the name of the gospel. Conversations come up. There are opportunities to minister and speak the word of God to people. You've got to live it. You've got to have the integrity that you're living the truth. You're not duplicitous in your life. You have integrity or sincerity with the gospel. That's, that's having a clear conscience. I want to say this as well, just as a foundational idea. Listen, a lot of times we put the pastor and elder so high compared to a deacon. You say, well, I can be a deacon, but I can't be an elder. But the only difference in qualifications in terms of being blameless, in terms of knowing scripture, in terms of walking the walk, 
and having the life of integrity. The only difference is in that gift that as an elder, you've got to be able to communicate truth to people. That's the only difference, and we're going to talk about that next week. But, but really, in terms of being qualified, it's the same list of qualifications. You say, well, I'm out. I'm out, or I'm a deacon or deaconesses, deaconess, so take me off the list. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we're all people who are being shaped by the master, and we're all under the looking glass of Scripture, and we're all trying to grow together in these qualifications together, whether you're in a serving role, whether you're male, whether you're female, and whether or not you're an elder or a full-time pastor. We're all in the same boat under these qualifications, which can be intimidating or it can be wonderfully freeing because you understand that it's only by the grace of God that any of us minister in any capacity whatsoever. So, again, holding the mystery of faith. What does the word mystery mean here? I'm not asking for class participation, but it's an interesting question to throw out. Mystery, some people interpret as it means that, that the hard things of God or the deep things of God are confusing or kind of up there and ethereal and can't understand them. That's not how mystery is used at all in the Bible. The word mysterion or mystery simply means this. It's something that in former days was unclear and now has become clear. Or one other angle with mystery in the New Testament is this. If you're an unbeliever and you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're not regenerated, you might learn truth about God and the Bible superficially, but once you become a believer and the lights turn on in your heart, then you know Christ personally. What was mysterious before where you couldn't connect all the dots about who Jesus is and was and it becomes clear. And so it's, it's something that's revealed to you with clarity. There's a lot of people in postmodern Christianity that might not be Christianity at all, where they say, look, you know, I just love Jesus in mystery and this sort of cloud vagary where I'm kind of a practical agnostic and I'm all about relationships and ooey gooey, rich and chewy, you know, let's hold hands, have a fire, throw the stick in it and call it good. I mean, there is a strong movement that way. I know I'm being sarcastic and probably a little bit cavalier there, but I want to protect and defend the fact that the mystery is clarified in Christ, and that's how Paul is using this word mystery. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, this chapter 3, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's that word mystery, something that was you know, building in clarity from Genesis to Revelation, all the ceremonial sacrificial systems, all the prophecies of Christ, Christ, this person who's going to be Messiah, who's going to be pierced through for our transgressions, this lamb picture in the Old Testament. When Christ appeared and John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, guess what? Clarification moment. And the mystery is clear. That's what Paul is doing here, and he gives this hymn-like, you know, five-phrase confession that the early church probably sung where he's talking about Christ. He was manifested, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is gospel. Guess what? Every deacon, every deaconess, every person that wants to grow in spiritual leadership, wants to take steps, needs to know what this means. Needs to be able to explain it. Needs to be able to embrace it and live it personally. 
For instance, manifest in the flesh, what does that mean? It means Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He was fully God, second member of the Trinity, and he took on full humanity so that he became the God-man. Now, in theological terms, it's called the hypostatic union. You don't need to use that word or know that word, but it's shorthand for what I just said. He was manifested in the flesh. He came here, and he was physically here as the son of God and son of man. That's the first phrase. Secondly, vindicated by the Spirit. When was he vindicated? Well, when he was baptized. Matthew and Luke talk about this vision of Jesus. He had been tempted in the wilderness. Goes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I don't want to baptize you. He says, you got to do it to fulfill all righteousness. He's being baptized in front of the community, in front of other people. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. That is an affirmation by the third member of the Trinity. And then guess what? The first member of the Trinity shows up in terms of speaking what? This is my beloved son in whom, come on class, I am well pleased. There's a strong affirmation from God the Father. Well, guess what? I got to say this. You know, I was watching uh, this thing called The Elephant Room. You got T.D. Jakes on it, and you have other people, James McDonald and other people, and they're talking about, you know, how T.D. Jakes, this sort of televised prosperity gospel preacher, is now in the family, in the club, and and he comes from a Pentecostal oneness um, background as, as part of his denomination, and he was saying, look, I'm no longer a modalist. A modalist is a person who believes that God comes at certain times in history in one form at a time in the Trinity. In other words, Old Testament, he's God the Father, that's God. In the times of Christ, Jesus shows up, that's God. And now in the New Testament church, who is God? God is the Holy Spirit. So it's one mode at a time, it's called modalism. It's the same heresy that was in bygone days by a guy named Sabellianus, and so it's called Sabellianism. It's just nothing new under the sun, it's heresy. If you believe that, and, and he in that interview that I read transcript from and watched some on the video, he's still, he's saying he's not that, but he's still saying, no, you know, look here, you know, Jesus manifested himself in the flesh. So that manifestation, that's Jesus, that's God. And so he's kind of doing some double speak there and he's not protecting the Trinity, the Trinitarian doctrine, which is gospel doctrine. Why? Well, I don't know his heart or his motive, but typically when people want some corner edge or some nuance on the truth or some idea that they've got the angle or the answer to the gospel in a unique way, they're trying to hold a power position. And that fits well with a prosperity gospel, which is very moneyed in terms of communication. So why do I bring that up? I bring that up because the clarity of the gospel has to be believed on by the deacons and the deaconesses because they're guarding and protecting the gospel along with the elders, overseers, and pastors. It's the leadership. Whether you're male or female, you got to know doctrine, you got to believe it, and you got to understand, look at He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. When was Jesus taken up? When he ascended to heaven, Acts 1, where the Shekinah cloud swept him up into glory. So you have Jesus' birth, 
his vindication at baptism here. He's affirmed by the Holy Spirit. You can infer from the story by God the Father as well. You have the full Trinity, the full gospel, and you have the explosive nature of world evangelization that came out of that, and Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. All that's here in the gospel. It was mystery that it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and then it's believed on in clarity as we understand it in the gospels. Deacons and deaconesses, you're not off the hook. You've got to know that, believe that, and have a clear conscience to live it. Verse 10, And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The word tested here shouldn't be past tense. It's a present active indicative. It means that really as someone who's taking steps in spiritual leadership, you're always being tested. It's testing. You're you're in a testing process. It's the idea of metals being refined by heat. And let me just say this. There's not a one-time test for spiritual leadership. You're always under a testing of God and even the body of Christ as you lead, as you, as you grow in these qualifications. And there's a warning here. You got to be proven. You know, you're dignified. You're not double-tongued. You're not an addict. You're not greedy. You know and live sound doctrine. And number six, you're proven. You got to be proven to be a spiritual leader. And I just have to point this out. 1 Timothy 5, verse 22 is a clear warning that parallels with this. You know, if I said I, you know, sort of was going to take a long time on that point, just buckle up. Got to go round two with this one. It's a really important one. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Um, Paul was saying something to the early stage, earliest stage of the church to Timothy that has needed to be played out in all local churches, and that's simply this. Don't rush to affirm someone in spiritual leadership. That hasty decision can sow a seed of destruction from the inside out to a church. I'm telling you, from experience, not here, but a former experience as a fellow elder, if you have someone who's been rushed into eldership or rushed into being a deacon or a deaconess, it will hurt the ministry from the inside out. That's what Paul is saying. Don't rush to put a novice or someone who's newly planted in the faith in the church. I mean, in the church leadership. Now, that's, that's a hard one. It's a difficult scenario to, to work through because there are people that are worth watching in the church who exude leadership, who exude skill, who have savvy, perhaps have business savvy, or, you know, they look like the total package. But if they're not godly, if they're not ready, and you put them too hastily in office, it will hurt you. There's no worse place to be than on a board of directors or a board of pastors, or a, a board of elders, where there's infighting, where there's disagreement, where people are using fleshly means to, you know, shuck and jive and stop progress in the body of Christ, or to harm it, or even worse, this, and we're going to talk about this next week, it's where someone becomes a spiritual leader, and they believe in something that's contrary to the gospel, false teacher, 
I mean, it's replete in the New Testament, the warnings against false teaching. And it's, it's this, it's a false teacher comes in and it's subtle. So it's not like, oh, you know, we should have known that, should have seen that coming, you know. That person doesn't quite, you know, believe the gospel just right. No, it's very subtle and it's satanic. And it's when a person gets in the inside of the flock and they begin to create controversies and suspicions. And look at this, this is the word that, Paul uses speculations. It's sort of this, you know, I kind of believe that, but not really sure. And you create that kind of dynamic and suddenly the boldness of the gospel goes away and you just have a watered down message and it's not inspiring. It's not strong. And so that's why you don't want to rush to lay hands on someone. Look at verse 24. This is the process. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, you might think a person is godly and holy and ready to go into the leadership team, but their sins haven't shown up yet. But eventually, if you're around somebody long enough, you have a relationship with somebody long enough, the sins are going to bubble to the surface and then need to be dealt with. And it either can be dealt with and then you affirm the person or it's not time yet. But it's easier to not rush to lay hands on than to lay hands on someone and then they're in. And perhaps they shouldn't be. Look at verse 25. On the opposite side, so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In other words, eventually if someone is qualified, that's going to bubble to the surface. And so oftentimes within the church, elders or deacons are people who are doing the work of an elder or doing the work of a deacon and the church just says, hey, why don't you jump on the deaconship team and why don't you, why don't you serve as an elder? Because you're doing the work already anyway. That's how it works. That's how the body of Christ involves itself in affirming people who are ready. And this ultimately falls on the shoulders of the spiritual leadership within the church by design. That's the laying on of hands ministry. If the leaders lay hands on people who are not qualified, guess what? They themselves are guilty of the sin that's brought into the leadership team. So it's a strong warning against doing that. You don't want to share in that sin. You don't want to participate in hurting the church. All right, let me just uh, roll through what we have here remaining. Verse 11, which I don't want to rush this. I mean, this is an important part as well. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The ESV and other translations call this the wives, which at Anchorage Grace Church, we often have people who are deacons, who are men, and then their wives come alongside and they serve as deaconesses too. That's appropriate, and it's appropriate to translate this that way. But there's no mention of qualifications for the wife of an elder, pastor, overseer. So it's a little bit awkward that for the deacon there is, and or for the, the women, you know, here you have the, as a wife that has to meet qualifications where a wife of a pastor wouldn't. And so I think we get it right here in terms of our polity in that we're talking not just about the wife of a deacon, but any woman who is to be designated specifically, officially for spiritual service. I do. And in many ways, look at the text. It says, verse 11, their wives, which the there or the possessive word here in the original language isn't there. The there is not there in the original language. T-H-E-I-R is not 
T-H-E-R-E. I think I got that right, right? Grade school teachers. It's not there. It just says women. And so Paul is just using a term. There's no word for deaconess in the scripture. So it's just, look, you have deacons. And look, if you're a woman who is also a deacon, I want to say a few things to you specifically. That's what Paul's doing here. He's recognizing someone like Phoebe in Romans 16 verse 1 who is called literally a servant which is the word a deacon of centuria she is a deacon she's a version of this and so we have deacons deaconesses is what we call them here at Anchorage Grace they are to be dignified again that's sort of an umbrella idea of you're a sober-minded, God-fearing woman. And so it kind of grabs the other qualifications under this list. Not a slanderer. The word slanderer here is literally not a diabolus. You can't be a devil. Women, if you're a deaconess, you can't be a devil-like person. Okay, that's what it's saying. It's kind of funny. Um, but it's the idea that you're not accusing people of things. You're, you're respected in an office of spiritual leadership, you know, women leading women, and then coming alongside in the body of Christ in a participatory example role in the body. That's spiritual leadership. And so you can't use that to dog other people. You're going to be privy to information. Be careful with it. Same idea. So you are not a slanderer, you're sober-minded. We've talked a lot about that, and you're faithful in all things, which means that you're tested. You're not rushed to the position. You prove yourself faithful, and it happens. And then, verse 12, back to the men. Deacons, each be the husband of one wife. We talked about that last week for the elder. It means that you're sexually pure, men doesn't mean you haven't had a divorce in your life. doesn't mean that you haven't been married before. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean, doesn't mean. It just means you're a one-woman man. It means that you are set apart for your wife. If you're married, she's it. And that's, that's the call of every man. If you have the privilege of being married, you love that woman. And that's where your affections go and your heart goes. That's what it means. You care about your wife. Your wife-focused and then secondly, verse 12, I love the simplicity of this, managing their children and their own households well. Guess what? You're devoted to your wife and you're devoted to your kids. Yeah, but what am I supposed to do as a deacon? Where am I supposed to serve? Where am I supposed to get involved? Well, okay, the work of being a deacon, I, I love my spouse and I love my kids. That's the primary work. You get that going right and people are going to ask you to do things. Ministry will open up. You don't get that right, you're kind of two-faced and all you know, over the place and immoral, then God's going to forbid ministry to you or you'll get into ministry and you'll start to mess it up and it will be a mess for the church. You're not focused on your family the right way. Your kids will eat your lunch from the inside out and disqualify you. And those are heartaches in ministry. And so you get it right with your spouse and you get it right with your kids. And if it's not right yet, then you get that right. And then those roles open up. So what happens if this is right and someone is qualified in this way? Look at verse 13. This is the fruit that someone experiences in spiritual leadership. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We're not talking about getting an extra crown in heaven. Guess what the confidence is? The confidence is that you know you're right with God. You know you're serving him where he wants you to serve. And suddenly Christianity makes sense to you and your heart is inflamed and you're excited. The word literally for confidence is bold, 
or boldness. Who remembers, I'm going to borrow some time here, but who remembers when you first got saved, especially if you went from a darkness to light sort of thing. I was going for the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then I did a 180. Who remembers how on fire for Christ they were at the beginning, right? And then, I'm not trying to speak for you, but maybe you kind of fizzled out and you go, man, it's hard for me to even get in my Bible now. I used to witness to the street sign, you know, when I would walk up to it. Now I'm afraid to talk to anybody about Jesus, right? Am I the only person? All right, anyway, I mean, this word gives the answer to what's going on there. As you become a Christian, your conscience is clear because you know Jesus paid for it all and you haven't stacked up any legalism yet and you haven't stacked up any licentiousness yet in your life. You haven't been too free. You haven't been too legalistic. You're not the older brother from the prodigal son yet and you're not the younger brother in the prodigal son story yet. So you're free and you're excited and the gospel's real and you're empowered. Well, what happens is, is your conscience becomes sullied and soiled as you live cavalierly and suddenly it quiets your spiritual life and you're not bold anymore. Well, the way to become bold as a Christian is to have a clear conscience, to be clear on the gospel and to be qualified spiritually as you're taking steps toward God. Being shaped by the master, growing in Christ, it brings a boldness, it brings sort of this, this spirit that you're going, Christianity's real and I can witness to people and I can participate in the body of Christ. Do you want that to be true of your life? I do. I want it for all of you and I want it for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word. Thank you for truth. We thank you for this list that we can examine ourselves through. And I pray, God, that we would remember that Jesus is the ultimate servant, servant and example for us. Jesus took on the form of a slave He put on the apron of a slave. He washed the apostles' feet and he washed our sins away. We thank you, God, that we can serve the brothers and sisters in Christ here in this local church. And I pray that if anyone is being called or prompted towards the diaconate, towards this office, male or female, that they would pursue Christ and Christ liked us first and foremost and just serve because it's who they are. And that, Lord, you would allow for them to be affirmed, um, not for some sort of position's sake, but just because it's being more effective in the body of Christ. Lord, conform us to your image, no matter what office we have or do not have. Let us meet the qualifications because of the gospel. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, before I let you guys out of